well, I can't touch my toes. I can get within about a foot of them, but I can't touch them. Um, I'm not that flexible. I've never really been that flexible. I can bend my legs and touch my toes, but then I look like a frog, so that's not good. Any, anybody here that is really flexible? You've always been flexible. All right, a few people, and they're all under the age of 10. No. Um, now, some of you at some point probably were somewhat flexible, and you might have uh, smashed me at the sit and reach. Do you remember the sit and reach from the, the president's physical challenge where it's that big wooden box, and you try to get your arms out there and do it, and I was terrible at that. Um, now, there is a trick. There is a trick to becoming more flexible. You don't even need a gym to do it. It's pretty simple. To become more flexible and to reach farther, you need to stretch your muscles out. That, that's it. Just stretch your muscles out. One personal trainer said this, when you first begin a stretching routine, you may notice that your mu- muscles feel tight or that you do not have much flexibility. However, you can build up flexibility and increase the amount of elongation in your muscles if you stretch frequently. Stretch frequently. That's an important part. You need to keep stretching in order to become more flexible. God is calling our church to reach farther for Him. And in order to do that, He needs to stretch us spiritually. We need to reach to proclaim Christ to more people, to experience more love for each other, to bear more fruit for his glory, and to advance the light of the gospel into more and more dark places. How will we ever reach those places if God doesn't stretch us there? And when we stretch, we might feel some tightness in our spiritual muscles because stretching is is not always comfortable. But stretching is always necessary if you want to reach farther. Maybe after last week's sermon, you're wondering if there's a big division among us. And I can understand that. So hopefully this puts you at ease. Now, I obviously do not know what the future will hold for our church. But I believe that our church has remarkable unity right now. Remarkable unity. It's been a huge blessing for me as your pastor. I've seen unity in leadership. I've seen unity in different ministries here. I've seen unity in people's excitement for our uh, shared common new mission. We have unity. It's a beautiful thing at our church, and it's greatly helping us to reach farther together. But saints, unity is like flexibility. If you don't keep stretching, you grow stiff. You grow stiff. And when you grow stiff and you attempt to move move ahead, what happens? The muscles start to pull and tear. And injuries develop and they hinder movement. Many necessary and biblical changes have been made here over the past five years or so. Some significant things have changed. And we've had remarkable unity in those changes, but you see, God is calling us to stretch even farther and to reach even farther. And so we must be flexible, we must reach, or else we're going to tear. We can't afford to be stiff. Now, your bodies can be stiff, as some of them are, 
but your spirit cannot be stiff. It cannot be stiff. Be thankful for the unity that we have, but I want to help you focus as a church on one shared mission. I think that's part of my job, so that our unity grows so that God stretches us even more, and we don't tear, but instead we grow more flexible so that we can reach farther together. See, we're about a common shared mission. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Will you stretch spiritually? Will you become flexible as God stretches you? I want to see us reach farther. I'm not content with the the length of our reach. I want to see us reach farther. And so I'm asking you to unify around one mission, our mission, leading people to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ. Above all things, to the glory and worship of God and I'm asking you to put that mission, which, which I can defend from Scripture, I hope you could defend it too, I'm asking you to put that mission above your personal preferences, above your ideas, above your opinions, above your desires for this church. I'm asking you to look to where God wants us to go. Look out five years, look out 10 years, look out 50 years, look out 400 years to where God is calling us to go. Because if we all selflessly unify around one mission, the mission will become most important. And when God stretches us, we won't snap. We won't. But we will reach farther. We will reach farther together for the glory of God and the greater joy of all kinds of other people that we will reach. Isn't it certain I think this is true, that given enough time, we will change some things here at Jerusalem Church that you don't want to change. Probably true for me, probably true for you, probably true for all of us. So the question is, will you stretch and become flexible, or will you be rigid and perhaps tear? See, we either unify around our Christ-centered and biblical mission, it's not Jonathan's mission, it's not the elder's mission, it's God's mission, a biblical mission and stretch together or we cling to our own wishes, we cling to our own desires, we cling to what we want and we become rigid and inflexible and stagnant as a church. What good is a stagnant church in the community? What love can a stagnant church show to people? Unity is urgent for this reason, my friends, because 4,000 churches not so different from ours right here are closing their doors every year because the people in those churches were unwilling to stretch to new lengths, were unwilling to reach to new lengths, and God dried them up. I want Jerusalem Church to bulk up, pump some major spiritual iron So we can bulk up biblically, theologically, spiritually, so that we've got some muscles behind that. But like an Olympic gymnast, okay, along with muscles, we have to have flexibility. Or you're not, you're just not going to do much. Philippians 2 is calling us to stretch a little farther, stretch a little farther. And God is calling us to deal with some selfish ambition and conceit in our hearts, and to reach for more humility. We must stretch. We must. We must reach. 
Verses 3 and 4, they're famous verses. They call us to radical humility and selflessness. And they focus uh, us on uh, how we can promote and preserve uh, unity in our lives and in our church. So remember this little rhyme. It's at the top of your your, uh, sheets there. Humility is the recipe for unity. Humility is the recipe for humility. Remember from last week that Christ is the foundation for our unity. Our union with him by faith is the basis for our oneness as a church. So when Paul adds in verses three, uh, th- 3 and 4 how a Christian should live in order to promote and preserve unity, we know it's only through Christ that we can do it. Our identity dictates our activity. Paul called the Philippians to stretch in this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Number one, do nothing from selfish ambition. The verb do is not actually in the Greek text. It reads more literally, nothing according to selfish ambition nor according to conceit. But clearly, as you read that, Paul's point is to do absolutely nothing with selfish ambition, or as uh, some uh, translations. This, by the way, just as a helpful clarification, the ESV has different translation years, and they'll change certain phrases as they update. So as we're reading rivalry here, to my knowledge, the most up-to-date one would say selfish ambition, and you'll see it in one other spot, I think, in this passage where it's slightly different. So I'm going to be referring to selfish ambition, not rivalry, although... You know, whatever. (laughs) They're basically the same. So clearly he's saying don't do this at all. Verse 3 is inseparable from unity that Paul addressed in verse 2. Any hint of selfish ambition threatens gospel unity. Dr. Hansen commented, quote, As long as Christians have the attitude that what matters most is self-fulfillment and self-advancement, they will never experience the unity of one mind. End of quote. Now, ambition is very good. Paul said in Romans 15, 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he said, we make it our aim or ambition to please him. Those are holy ambitions. It is right to be ambitious in that way. God-centered ambitions are good ambitions. Christians should be the most ambitious people you know. With God-centered ambitions. In verse 3, Paul was referring to selfish ambition. The word eretheia used to be a good term describing hired work. But over time, it came to mean something done with a what's-in-it-for-me attitude. What's-in-it-for-me attitude. One Greek dictionary describes selfish ambition as, quote, the exclusive pursuit of one's own interests. End of quote. Selfish ambition lurks deep within the heart. Deep within the heart. One must have the Holy Spirit of God to actually discover those selfish ambitions and to deal with them. Have you looked deep within your heart and evaluated why it is you do what you do? Do you just do it and not think about why? Or or do you crawl down into your heart and you expose, why am I really doing this? Like, what, what is motivating me here? 
That's the kind of work that we have to do. Is the Spirit of God helping you discover and deal with the selfish ambition that is in your heart? Selfish ambition is is motivated by a desire to serve ourselves. Just look at the preachers from chapter 1 in Philippians that that Paul references. See, selfish ambitions are self-seeking, self-centered, self-interested, self-absorbed, and self-regarding desires. And though they are often unseen from the outside, they are a cancer of the soul which needs to be diagnosed, treated, and defeated so the heart heart and soul can be truly healthy. In what ways at home and at church are you fixating on what's in it for you? What's in it for you? How are you exclusively pursuing your own selfish interests? How are you doing that? If you're ready to stretch and if you're ready to reach farther, then ask God to show you, to unearth for you your selfish ambition deep within your heart and ask him to get rid of it and to replace it for desires for him and desires to see others joyful in God. Paul, well, the Holy Spirit can help you to do this. Philippians, through the pen of Paul, can help you to do this. Paul knew the beauty of unity and the cancerous threat of selfish ambition, how selfish ambition destroys people. So he warned them, do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Nothing. I don't want you to talk with selfish ambition. I don't want you to serve on a committee with selfish ambition. I don't want you to drive to the supermarket with selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition should not be allowed in your heart. It should not be allowed in your marriage. It should not be allowed in your family. It should not be allowed in your home. It should not be allowed in your business. It should not be allowed in your church. It is completely unwelcomed. Here's something I've struggled with. Um, So I hope that this helps you in some way. And I hope it makes sense because up here is a messy place. So let's say that you think of something loving and kind to do for someone else. But then you realize quickly after that that if you do it, it might make you look good and serve in your best interests, and they might actually respond positively by what you did. And then you start getting concerned, am I really doing this to show love to them, or am I doing this to get something? And you get so confused in that mental mess that you just don't do it because you don't want to be selfish and do something self-serving, so you don't even do it at all. And you work yourself into a corner spiritually. Here's how I work through that. Was my initial thought to love the person or to do something for myself? So if, if love came first, God gave me that loving thought and I probably should do it. But either way, no matter when the selfish ambition or thoughts got mixed up in, in my head or yours... Um, If I notice a self-serving thought or ambition surfacing, I must not cease to do what is right or loving, but should instead confess and repent of my selfishness, ask God to replace that selfishness with love, and then I should do the right thing anyway. 
you don't stop from doing the good. You repent of whatever thing developed in your heart, and then you do the good, asking him, give me love, give me centering on you and centering on them. Give that to me, God, and you do it. See, we simply need to wage war against our selfish ambitions while we bless others. We can't shut down. We should never cease to do good out of fear of being selfish, but rather deal with our selfishness as we do good. We should repent of wrong motivations as we do good. It's not full obedience until our heart is along with it, so replace of the part that's not good. It's not the act. It's the motivation, so repent of that, confess that, and ask God to give you different motivations. That, that's been helpful for me. Now, imagine a world where everybody lives selfishly. Everybody lives for themselves. Imagine that world. <laughs> oh, wait, that's the world we live in. That's the real world. But the gospel breaks that pattern. Jesus died to put our selfish ambition to death so that we could be liberated from it. And he gave us the Holy Spirit. This is very exciting. So we could overcome selfish ambition and no longer live to advance ourselves, but live to advance his great name and live for the joy of other people. That's what the gospel does. It liberates us. So no, there is absolutely no room in your life for selfish ambition. Nor conceit. Number two, do nothing from conceit. The Greek word for conceit is kenodoxia. It's a compound word of kenos, meaning empty, and doxa, meaning glory. Empty, glory. Vain glory. It's when someone gives themselves much credit for no justifiable reason. And there's no room for that in the Christian's life. No room. Why? Please listen, because everything that a Christian is in Christ, they are because God made them that through Christ. Conceit is utterly ir- irrational for the Christian because it exalts human achievement without proper recognition of Christ's achievement. Christ deserves all the credit, leaving absolutely no credit for us. Therefore, we have no cause to boast outside of Christ. First Corinthians 1.31 says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We should boast, but not in ourselves. Not in ourselves. Not ever in ourselves. We should boast in the accomplishments of our Lord, who has made us what we are. Only a fool boasts in himself. Now, this doesn't mean we need to downplay our strengths. Don't be the person who can't ever receive a compliment or who fails to acknowledge their strengths. I believe that's actually a brand of pride in and of itself. Paul was addressing the human propensity to ignore God and to exalt in human ego. Anne Rand, you might know her name, the famous novelist who wrote the bestseller Atlas Shrugged, adhered to what is called objectivism, a philosophy that people often attribute to her. And Anne said this about her objectivism, quote, my philosophy, in essence, is the concept of man as a heroic being, with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute. Writer Christopher Smith described Rand's objectivism like this, 
Objectivism champions ego and accomplishment, shuns all religion as folly, and condemns any form of charity or altruism as counterproductive to society. And sadly, Ayn Rand lived out this objectivism. And this bold narcissism and self-centeredness is all too common in American culture and society. And even, sadly, in American theology. You might know the name Salvador Dali. He's uh, probably best known for his surrealist painting, The Persistence of Memory, which looks like a barren desert with melted clocks. So you might have seen that before. Anyway, one time Salvador Dali said this, Every morning when I awake, the greatest of joys is mine, that of being Salvador Dali. Al Jolson, you might know that name. He was a famous vaudeville performer. In 1911, during a a certain play, Jolson actually stopped and asked the audience if they would rather hear him sing than continue with the rest of the play. And they applauded. (laughs) Yes! So he stopped everything and just sang, I think, for the rest of the time. Imagine how that would have been for all the other entertainers of the show. Saints, this, is, this kind of conceit goes deep within you and goes deep within me. We promote ourselves at the expense of the glory of God and the joy of other people. But believers have the Holy Spirit to combat gross conceit in their, in their life and combat it we must. There is no room for conceit in our lives. None, absolutely none. When we have a proper view of God and his sovereign grace and a proper view of ourselves, conceit is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Regarding both selfish ambition and conceit, John Calvin said this, these are two most dangerous pests for disturbing the peace of the church. He's absolutely right. A great way to destroy a church is for everyone to think most highly of themselves. How would they ever do what God has called them to do, which is an entirely selfless mission? You're not going to accomplish selfless things if you're all about you. The rest of verse 3 gives us the alternative. But... In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's key. Number three, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is the recipe for unity. Humility is not self-deprecation. It's not constantly putting yourself down. It's not undying insecurity. It's not declining a compliment or refusing to talk about yourself. At the core, all those things are pride. Humility is simply seeing yourself as Christ does. That's humility. He knows your sin, and he knows who he's made you, and he knows what gifts that he has given you. So learn to see yourself as Christ sees you, and you will be a humble person. The greatest example of humility, bar none, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and next week we're going to focus on verses 5 through 8 where Jesus Christ's impeccable humility is put on glorious display through these verses, but Jesus knows who he is. 
Jesus knows who he is. He knows what God thinks about him, so that's how he thinks about himself. So having the mind of Christ then, which is a mind conformed to Scripture, is how you can think accurately about yourself and therein be humble. What does the Scripture say about you? What does God say about you? The Scripture is God's word. He's speaking to you, and he's speaking in part, second to his, himself, he's speaking about you, who you are. It is therefore inside of humility that we are able to count others more significant than ourselves. To count others is to consider or to regard others in a certain way. We are to regard others as more significant than ourselves. We are to hold others in higher esteem than ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to believe that God loves other saints more than he loves us. That's not what it's saying. And it doesn't mean that we should think that every other Christian is more talented or spiritually mature or producing more for the kingdom because God raises up some really mature people that are producing more than you and me. And that's okay. We just need to know who we are in Christ. It means we should outdo one another in showing honor to one another, honor and worth. Let me ask you a tough question. You've got a good idea. You're like, oh yeah, this is going to do something. And your idea gets shot down. And they use someone else's idea. What's your response? What's your response? Are you hurt by that? Are you offended that it wasn't your idea that was chosen? If you see yourself as Christ sees you, you don't have to be hurt. You don't have to be offended. You don't even have to get angry. You can be humble. Christ frees you to see the bigger picture and to be a team player. And even if you're right and everybody else is wrong, you can still promote and preserve unity through Christ's humility at work in you. In you. Our greatest concern should not be our own ideas. Our greatest concern should be to advance the gospel. True? True. Humble people who count others more significant than themselves are a joy to be around and they're very easy to work with. Not because they are pushovers, not because they are yes men and never have their own ideas or, or opinions, but because they are so fixated on Christ and doing whatever most glorifies him that even when others disagree with them, they honor and respect and love others and show preference and decency for others. They fight selfish ambition within themselves. They fight conceit within themselves. And they work to advance the gospel even if it's not through their own idea. Because they know that their idea isn't the point. Christ is the point. Listen to what Peter wisely said in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Oh, how great it is to put on your favorite sweatshirt in the fall. When it's cool, you might be sitting by the fire, having a mug of something of your favorite hot drink. That's great. But you know what's greater than that? putting on and clothing ourselves with the humility of Christ. Why? Why not just live for yourself? You've got great ideas. You can do it. You can accomplish anything as the garbage American way tells you. 
There are some people who won't. But kids, listen up. You're probably not going to be an NBA star. I'm just saying. If God gives it to you, you'll fight through my criticism of your game. All right. Here's the good reason why we shouldn't live for, for ourselves. And there's a good reason. God will oppose you. God will oppose you. If you are a proud person that lives to advance yourself and to just think about yourself, you have to know God is not for you. God is against you. But, but if you humble yourself, you bow before the king, you bow before God, you look to serve others, you know what? God is going to just shower you with incredible grace. You're going to have all the grace you need. You're going to have grace. It's not even going to be funny. It'll be glorious. Pride kills churches. Unity blesses churches. The same goes for marriage. The same goes for family. Same goes for business and many other things. Humility is the recipe for unity. Verse 4 stretches us a bit farther, folks. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 4, look not only to your own interests. We have to look out for our own interests to some extent. To a certain extent. Brush your teeth, folks. All right? Eat food. Wear modest clothing. Take care of yourself spiritually. Paul seems to imply that we should look out for our own interests some. Paul included this little word, chi, which is translated also. So it reads like this. Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul's point is not to say never look to your own interests, but his point is to be so radically others-oriented. You shouldn't go through life always thinking about yourself and what you need. There's more to life than what you want and need. There's how you can meet the, others, the other people's needs. Paul was instructing the Philippians to carefully and wisely consider the best interests of others. In no way is Paul emphasizing, look out for yourself, look out for number one. He's emphasizing emphatically to look out for the interests of other people, other people. Now, if you're ever on a plane and something, and it starts to go down and you're losing cabin pressure, what's the first thing you should do? Scream, scream, scream your head off. But after you scream, what, what should you do? You should fasten your own mask, right? We've, we've gone through this for those of you who have been on planes. Now, why is that? Why, we, why should we fasten our own mask? So that we can just sit there comfortably reading our magazine while the guy beside us is like <gasps> gasping for air. And we're like, man, this, is, this air magazine has some cool stuff in it. Look at that hat for the cat, man. That's amazing. They have all these. Have you ever looked at those? They're ridiculous. They have weird things in them that you never knew existed. So check it out the next time. But you put on your own mask first for a reason. Because what good are you to anyone else if you're passed out on the floor? Secure yours quickly. You're not spending a lot of time on it. You pull it down and start to help. And look outside of yourself. Securing your own mask can be a, wonderfully act, a wonderful act of selflessness that enables you to focus on other people. And I think that's kind of the flavor of what Paul is saying here. His emphasis is putting others first. Putting others first. Romans 15, 2, 2 and 3 is a great accompanying text, and this is what it says. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. Jesus Christ humbled himself, and he came here as a servant to give his life for one reason, to glorify God by redeeming tons of people. 
He put God and others before himself. The bloody cross displays the great lengths that Jesus went for the good of his enemies. Not his good buddies, his enemies. He looked to the interest of others. Number five, look to the interest of others. Look to the interest of others. The word look means to take great interest in something. Uh, as Christians, we should fixate our, on the needs of other people. You've probably heard these famous words before. Listen closely. It's great. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Think about that. Love does not insist on its own way because love looks to the interests of others, others, others. Christ first, then everybody else. Now, I would submit to you that the most important thing is not looking to the interests of other people. Paul said a lot in Philippians before that point. It is when we look to Christ through his word that we all have the same mind, the mind of Christ, and then we are free to look out for the interests of others. And we'll see this in the next week in verse, verse 5. It is our shared union with Christ that awakens our fixation on meeting the needs of other people. Listen to what Christ awakened in Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 33. Just as I, this is Paul speaking, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. We, we need to be people who seek the advantage of others before we seek the advantage of ourselves. Not only are we finding our joy in Christ and grabbing as much joy as we possibly can, we need to start thinking, how can I help that person grab as much joy as they can in Christ? Let me ask you a simple question. Is your life preoccupied with figuring out how to meet the physical and spiritual needs of others so that they encounter Christ through you? How much time do you spend thinking, how can I bless that person? How can I bend over backwards and snap in half for their benefit so that they can experience more joy in Christ. Man, we need so much help with this. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this, consider how you can help others and in what way you can prosper them, both in temporal things and in spiritual. You are members of a body, so one member is not to think for itself alone. The unity of the whole body requires that every separate and distinct part of it should be in harmony with the whole. All right. God is calling you and me to be entirely selfless in everything we do. Zero room for any thought about how to advance you. All of it consumed about how to advance Christ and how to serve other people. That's what Paul's saying. These are tough words. This is impossible without the Holy Spirit. So each of us must not think for ourselves alone. We must think with one mind, the mind of Christ, and in our oneness, we will find selflessness. We will find humility. We will find unity. When we live humbly and selflessly, like Paul is teaching us to do here in this passage, we will be happier and happier as people, because Jesus told us the truth that it is better to give than to receive. It is, it is more blessed. It is happier to be on the giving end than on the receiving end. 
So if you're going to pursue your greatest joy, you're going to have to pursue giving selflessly because that's where greatest joy is found. All right, obey verses three and four because you will be much happier putting others first and promoting and preserving the unity of your church. Humility is the recipe for unity and your greatest joy. Now, I want to inspire you with a thought before I close out. Even though we are all so very different people, uh, all very, very different, God redeemed us through Christ, amen, and gave us the Holy Spirit to stretch us spiritually so as one body we could live out, verses 3 and 4. This is possible for us. This is not reading this text and saying it's impossible. You're forgetting, if you think that way, that we have the Holy Spirit of power within us. We can do this. We can live it out because as the Spirit stretches us, He produces greater humility and unity in us and we can stretch farther to reach more people and reach more people. We need the gospel to be humble, my friends. The gospel says that Jesus Christ was never selfish or conceited, was always humble at all times, and always put the will of God in interest of others first. And Jesus did this for you because why? Why did he do that? Because you were trapped in selfishness, trapped in conceit, trapped in pride, trapped in a world of self-absorbed thoughts. And the grace of God acted And sent Christ as your substitute to pay the full wage for your selfish sin and mine. So that simply by your union with Christ, through faith, you are liberated from your selfishness. Liberated from your self-centeredness to take on the mind of Christ and therefore live for the interests of God and other people. It is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the model for humility, but my friends, it's also the power of humility. It's the power. He's the power. So saints, in order to eradicate all selfish ambition and conceit from your life, you need to put to death what is earthly in you. As Colossians 3.5 tells us, we need to put on humility, as Colossians 3.12 tells us, and we need to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, as Colossians 3.14 tells us. Galatians 5.16 adds, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. That's how to conquer this. Walk by the Spirit. You live out Philippians 2, 3, and 4 by putting selfish ambition and conceit to death through repentance and faith and choosing to walk by the Spirit who gives you humility. You have the Spirit, dear saints, so you have the ability to do this. So let me end with this. In the coming months and years, God is going to stretch you. He will. He's going to stretch our church. You might feel some tightness with that, some uncomfort with with where we're going, and I can pretty much guarantee you're going to feel some tightness. Our church will always be changing, and that's a great thing if we never change, never budge, hold true to Scripture, but flex in the non-essential things and change whatever helps us advance the gospel more effectively. Are you on that page with me? I hope. I hope. And we might disagree on exactly how those things look, hence the need for incredible unity at this church. So when God stretches you and when you feel tight and uncomfortable, will you reach a little farther? And then a little farther, and then a little farther, will you reach? Will you be flexible in God's hands? 
Humility is the recipe for unity. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. We're going to need a lot of both, a lot of both, to get where God is calling our church to be and to go. Let's pray. Father, oh, you are so great, and I thank you for Jesus, and I thank you your spirit, which works through the word of God to convict people right where they're at, to comfort people right where they're at, to encourage people right where they're at. We need this message this morning. I want to be more of a selfless and humble person. I am so prideful, God. I, can, I confess it. And our church has positions of pride too. We're in this together, God. Would you bring us to humility? Would you bring us to selflessness? Would you help us to put other people's needs ahead of our own? And as a church, God, I'd like to think you're calling us to go out into the world and to put other people who don't know Christ ahead of ourselves. They need to hear. They need to see radical and selfless love. And so help us to huddle up on Sundays and hopefully through the week too sometime to encourage one another and then to go out to people who so desperately need Jesus and to put their interests ahead of our own. To maybe put evangelism ahead of our fear. Put evangelism ahead of what someone might think of us or our reputation. God, your spirit has to do this kind of stuff in our church. I just don't know any other way we're going to be a humble, selfless, others-oriented church. I, that's impossible unless the spirit of God moves here. So that's what I pray for, for your glory. Amen.